Amy. Hi Viv, how are you? I'm good, the sun is shining. We just had a great chat with Felicia about sex and everything else. How are you doing? Yeah, I feel like there was so much to chew on. Mm. I felt like literally every strand of conversation that we started, I could have just talked about it so much more because uh, both you and Felicia were just offering so much perspective that I didn't have, but also things that I could reflect on. And Mm. um, like just thinking back on, oh, if only I had these conversations growing up, it would have been amazing. Oh my gosh, I know. Like, because we talked about so much about like our culture being Chinese, uh, sexual shaming um, and how it all intersects together and we we just said at the end of that with Felicia just how we wish we had this conversation way back when so that we didn't have to I guess make those mistakes along the way um, but yeah you did as well because obviously you talked about um, the journey of giving birth and how that was and like the um, issues that you ran into when you were I guess work not working with <laughs> like speaking with the NHS and stuff like that um and that brought in a perspective that I don't have at the moment um so I thought it was such a brilliant brilliant podcast episode I really enjoyed it yeah it's one of those things where I feel like it's still a journey I think you know mm. all of us are still working things out you know there's things that we grow up with that we need to unpick and things that have occurred to me that I'm like whoa I didn't even realize that I had certain thoughts around sexuality and expressing yourself and the internalization mm. of messages that we see in media and even from our own families with yeah. regards to how we see ourselves sexually mm-hmm. especially existing as not just women but Asian women Mm. and the fact that often I just had the perception that was quite damaging to be honest and really affected me and how I perceived um, being an Asian woman should be and so that's something where I feel like oh I'm so glad that I can hopefully be armed with enough knowledge to be that person who you know whoever in my life my own child be able to talk to and be like look now I feel like I can talk about this and be that person to hopefully give a foundation where you know I can say look um certain things are going to come at you certain information messages uh from things you might watch and you might think it's okay but you know remember you're your own person and Mm. however you choose to grow up and accept yourself is completely valid and that's how I want to approach anyone in my life you know be like Mm. look no worries with me no judgments and I'm here to learn as well because I still feel like there's so much we could we need to understand in this world because there's so many different people in this world who just want to break out of very you know heteronormative very Mm. cisgendered binaries and just Mm. be able to say look there's a such a great human scope of people not just EC like everyone who we cross paths with so true I feel like your daughter is going to be the most socially aware baby (laughs) well put not she won't won't be a baby (laughs) she'll be a a grown adult person (laughs) can you imagine she's a nursery she's like no that's really heteronormative don't say that (laughs) I feel like it could happen so Dr Felicia she was saying how she was praising you and how much you knew about birth stuff and just Um, the, the amount that you've learned um 
you know, it just goes to show you did so (laughs) much research and how brilliant was Felicia as well. Like, uh, cause she said she was like a little bit nervous cause it was her first podcast episode, but she slid into my DMs when she listened to my podcast and heard that I wanted to talk about sex. And I'm so glad she did because if it was just me talking about sex, it would just be like, yeah. So the last time I had sex was, and it was this great or not so great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that's all the perspective I can really offer so I'm really glad that I had you on and also Felicia because her being a doctor a sexual and reproductive health doctor she brought in a lot of her own experience from that as well as being a Chinese woman and how to navigate the world um in in being someone who is Chinese and working in this field and one of the only few people working in this field as well such brilliant insight and there's so much that I learned like she shared brilliant resources at the end of the podcast as well she was so great yeah I totally agree I love the work that she's doing with like decolonizing that whole area and trying to Mm -hmm. break out of very narrow sort of um, stereotypes and approaches to that kind of um, industry because I really feel like it it doesn't consider a lot of people and how you know we live intersectionally there are many things that affect us that might not be taken into account Mm -hmm. and so now I really appreciate her I really do yeah I know it was great it was great (laughs) it was so good and I also yeah I also spilled a lot of like tea I guess when it comes to my own sex life because I guess that's my only experience that I can draw from and the shaming that it came to like having STDs um and how I felt about that and I've never shared that before I don't think in a public forum um so that was quite cathartic actually yeah yeah how do you feel um because obviously I think I feel like it's so important what you did like I think so many people will be able to resonate and say you know it's so good that someone can say it then I feel like um I could say it too for example how do you feel right now having revealed that information I feel empowered I think I've, I've kept that secret for a long time and like it's something that I don't even share with people that I dated really I shared it with a few I guess um and I think when I when I first said it I was like oh no what if someone that I'm dating listens to it and I'm like that is exactly why we need to talk about it because I can't you can't exist for the for in my in my circumstance the male gaze like I can't fit my narrative around what they think specifically um and it's it's way more important to empower all of us to be able to normalize talking about these types of things and my experience around that um so I feel really good actually I feel really really excited to share that um not just that part but the whole episode because um that's this is exactly what we need this is exactly what we need to be talking about um so yeah I feel actually quite proud of myself for sharing that no I'm very proud of you too I think that was an amazing moment I think it was so important and again I think being able to normalize saying things like you know yep I had chlamydia Mm -hmm. and you know I think Felicia touched on the point where she was talking about how working in a white majority industry and um, people unable to just you know just say you know due to racism there have been a very negative impact on particularly black women giving birth Mm. and we need to take 
stock off that and just admit it because I really think being able to say it say what the truth is like what's happening that's the only way that we can really move on I think there's this Mm -hmm. fear around language around saying the word STD Mm. chlamydia Mm. like racism like let's just admit that these things exist and are oppressive Mm. and move on like work on it because without being able to say it Mm -hmm. we can't even begin to do the work so no I I think that was a really important moment thank you and even the most basic language like saying the word vagina like I know that I was and the last episode I was like you know making fun of my mum because she she really didn't want me to say that (laughs) word we can't even say the word in which we like all you know we have like we is an organ that we have like that's the scientific term for it and I think it just starts starts with the conversation so totally agree with you on that yeah I mean why is it such a loaded term I think really think it's something which is you know has been built into us that it's come to represent a multitude of things to so many people and there's you know something which is I don't know is it gross and dirty of course it isn't but Mm -hmm. why has it become associated with these things and I think we just need to like divorce that from Mm -hmm. these associations which are just so unnecessary and just bring it back to what it is a beautiful powerful strong organ you know it's capable of so many things yeah and it's a beautiful thing you know vaginas I love them let's just say it you know vaginas are amazing I love my vagina my vagina is great yeah it's it's a perfect thing you know it can stretch to what so so much when you're giving birth it can give birth to something the size of a bowling ball that's incredible if you want it to you don't have to giving birth you know isn't you know uh, being a woman isn't all about giving birth definitely not and that isn't what defines you as a woman but Mm -hmm. let's just say vaginas are great you know it's brilliant Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love the way you talk Amy you sound like a poet when you talk (laughs) the language that you use and the words that you use I'm just like wow the talk is so creative you're just a creative through and through I feel like I'm just so creative just so creative because you you made a really good point you said something so you said sexuality is creativity you said that and I was like oh my god that is beautiful and it's so it true it is we need to empower ourselves see sexuality as something where we are just expressing our full humanity because mm. what I see as a like um like the opposite of that is the sexualization where I think that is dehumanizing you Mm. that is taking away your identity as a human your presence in the world because it's reducing you to an object so that's why I really want to encourage this idea that sexuality is humanizing it is Mm. something which you if you embrace it fully and can do without shame that's amazing it's incredible yeah we need to work against those forces that seek to dehumanize us and Mm -hmm. separate sexuality from sexualization which is just so damaging totally totally agree power to the vaginas power to the people power to talking about this power to you power to felicia who was brilliant dr felicia um really enjoyed it so i really hope people listening take something away from this yeah to hear what people think Tell us what you think. Tell us yeah. how you express yourself if you want to. Mm-hmm. Let's just normalize these conversations. It's brilliant. I agree. Well, thank you, Amy, for being my co-host today on the pod. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> we always do this where we back and forth. <laughs> like this game of chicken where we're constantly like, you've yeah. got to give up first. No, you... I am most grateful to you. <laughs> no, shut up. I'm grateful to you. Okay. <laughs> 
okay okay we'll literally stop. could go on forever <laughs> it's like this is like no you hang up no you hang up <laughs> all right well thank you amy cheers well thank you felicia and welcome to but where are you from Thank you for having me. Yay. I'm literally like fangirling right now. <laughs> <can't even> <laughs> That's so funny. Somehow I've managed to wrangle myself onto this podcast. It's great wrangling, great wrangling. And we also have Amy, who's my co-host today as well. Hello there. Hi, everyone. So lovely to finally meet you, Felicia and Viv. Yeah, your old news. <laughs> I can tell you too much already. Yeah, I'm boring. I'm boring. So, Felicia, I would love to ask you, but where are you from? Please tell us. Can I answer it the way that, like, you know, if someone approached me... Yeah, yeah, pretend I'm a white person asking you that question. (laughs) Just, like, really inappropriately, no boundary. No boundary. Yeah. Um, Yeah, right. So, uh, well, currently I live in Leicester, but I would say London's my home. Um, And then when I get pressed a little bit more, I'm like, okay, okay, yeah. uh, Well, I grew up in Canada. And they're like, okay, but where are you really from? I'm like, no, I was, I was born in Canada. But my family is Chinese. A little bit complicated with divorced parents, but let's say my, my birth parents are from uh, Guangzhou, so from the Canton region south. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a long time growing up, I thought I was originally from Hong Kong. So uh, what you asked me earlier is what my accent will be like. And it's a little bit all over the map. So you'll have little bits of Canadian, little bits of Britishness. And I, I love a northern accent. And I think when I speak to people for like a little bit, then I start to pick up bits of their accent. So we'll see what comes out at the end. Oh, I love that. I love that kind of like being able to converge into other people's accents a lot. So so how long were you in Canada for? And then when did you move over to the UK? So I was born and I grew up in Canada at summer CBC, Canadian Board Chinese. Um, and I came here for uni when I was 18, uh, so I went to uni in London and stayed, and now I'm working. What was that journey like when you were discovering, like you said at first you thought you were from Hong Kong, so what sort of prompted you to start delving a bit more into where are you from? So to give context, and I've been thinking a lot about this, especially whilst listening to your podcast, it's just like that, like kind of uh, bits of internalized I guess we're gonna go in deep just get in heavy right at the start do it uh internalized racism mm. the context for me growing up in Toronto is that it, it was like a huge EC community there like particularly a lot of Chinese people um a lot of Canto Chinese people so growing up actually I was like really surrounded by like most of my friends are Chinese or, or Korean and it was a bit of a like my diet was exclusively like a rotation of Chinese Japanese and Korean food Love it. Uh, and it was a bit of a uh, like culture shock moving to London where it's still super diverse but like to be Asian means South Asian um whereas in Canada when we say Asian we mean mm. easy Asian mm. um so that that was a change uh, the quality of sushi in London wasn't great but to come back to your question sorry <laughs> amy i think it's because at my school we had a lot of students from hong kong um and my family would spend time in hong kong but where my stepdad is from um and then eventually at one point i think my mom took me alone uh to to go see some family in Guangzhou, or it, it's all of a 
bit of a blur because I think I spent some time there as a child as well, but mm. like when I was three. Yeah. So you don't have any memories of that time, you just have pictures. I remember there was a moment as a teenager when I kind of realized I was like, oh shit, actually, my family roots aren't from Hong Kong. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of jokes about like mainlanders, yeah. quote unquote. Mm. Um, and when you're younger, you kind of like, joke along and you don't really think too much about it and at one point I was like no no actually that's us mm-hmm. it can really shift your worldview um yeah. can't it because I, I spoke previously on another podcast how I thought I was a Vietnamese for a while because there was so much of that influence on me growing up and then when I started to delve more into it and obviously spoke to my older siblings because as a family we just never really discussed anything about identity or where we're from so then when mm. you finally recognize actually this is you know my ethnicity this mm. is my family history um it's kind of like oh okay I can finally place myself in the world um correctly not that i i mean i don't think it really matters as long as you grow up i think that vietnamese influence was very important to me um but it can be i think it's a journey that so many diaspora asian diaspora people go through yeah. and it's so important and what connects us to so felicia what do you do so i was as you were saying all that i was thinking i was like yeah my parents never really talked about where they're from or like you know especially actually living in the UK like everyone's like oh my generation's going back like several centuries and I'm like vaguely related to Henry VIII or whatever <laughs> and I'm like oh I know where my grandparents are from and then it kind of just stops there mm. um but uh in terms of what I do so <laughs> uh, I cringe a little bit every time I say this I'm trying to like get better at that but uh, I'm a doctor so I'm like, why do you cringe much... that's like the best yeah. job to be especially coming from a chinese <laughs> family like, so chinese <laughs> right and that that kind of demonstrates in one sound like like how i feel about mm. being chinese and like there's always been a bit of a disconnect so yeah um there's i'm i'm the oldest of three and out of three of us like my brother and i are doctors and my sister's about to become a lawyer Oh, wow. Parents are oh, my tough, God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell, I'd be so proud. I don't want my mum to hear this because she's going to be, like, comparing. <laughs> yeah. You're the person my mum's like, my friend's daughter does this and her whole family, her children do this. And, yeah, you're, like, the embodiment of, like, who my mum, like, aspires. Well, <laughs> I think we'll, we'll get on to, like, when... So I'm a sexual and reproductive health doctor, mm-hmm. which to my mom is is like that's not I don't understand what kind of doctor is that yeah and uh so even even within it I think there are certain pressures like my mom would be super happy if I was a dermatologist like a skincare doctor where like you have a pretty nice kind of like clinic life Mm -hmm. um and she was like and then you could open she said this she was like you could open a spa next door (laughs) with like beady facials Mm. and people pay you a lot of money because you're a doctor (laughs) it's all about the money oh no we have different views on what i want to (laughs) do and what made you want to become a sexual reproductive health doctor i think it's one of those things that like things just fell into place mm. um, over my time at uni. Um, so 
I think I'm quite lucky and part of the reason why I've stayed in the UK is because this really niche specialty, uh, sexual and reproductive health, which kind of um, pulls on from like a lot of different other specialties. So I spend some time doing obstetrics and gynecology, which historically has been called women's health, even though it's not just women um, who may need the services, um, as well as like sexual health, so uh, what we call genitourinary medicine um, and public health and, and there's like all sorts of other bits and bobbles as well. Um, but this kind of specialty doesn't really exist as a standalone training program in like Canada, for example, or the US or really anywhere else. Mm. I think the closest thing would be something like community gynecology. For a long time, uh, my whole time at med school, I was like, I don't really want to be a doctor. Um, <laughs> oh, jeez. I was really, um, really active in, in kind of global health and public health um, student advocacy. And I thought that I would graduate, maybe do like my foundation years, uh, which we need to do to be like a fully qualified uh, doctor, and then maybe go into public health research. Um, but along the way, I found that actually, I really was drawn towards abortion advocacy in particular, more recently broadening into more like sex positivity, openness around sexuality and gender, and like <laughs> deconstructing all of the social norms, really, yeah. really yeah. being one of them. It just fell in place in terms of I was doing my kind of clinical placement as a student in Obstinkaini at the same time that there was a really big kind of a lot of chat um, around abortion rights at uni. So this was 2012, I think. Mm. Um, I remember that because there are these anti-abortion, quote-unquote, pro-life groups um, that in the last decade in the UK, they've kind of mobilized and become a lot more like American in their in their tactics. So kind of protesting outside of clinics with really upsetting and aggressive images and, and targeting mm. people who are there for healthcare and targeting people who are like particularly vulnerable in how they're feeling. And you don't know what that person's story is. Yeah. What they were doing in 2012 is that they set up like a tour of UK universities Mm. Like they were deliberately going from uni to uni mm. with their posters and, and message. Yeah. Um, and it kicked up a lot of discussion around the time because um, then student unions were coming out as explicitly pro-choice. There was a lot of publicity around trying to get these groups off campus, basically. Mm. And I remember for me, I was like, obviously, this is terrible. Why would you, they shouldn't be here and they shouldn't be targeting people like this? Um, but I think even the discussion amongst, like, I would say I have a really progressive group of friends um, around the people that I spent time with. There was still like, oh, but like in this circumstance or, oh, well, yeah, it, it brought up some uncomfortable questions mm. or conversations, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I remember speaking about yeah abortion and and beliefs of it with my friends and and similar to you very progressive friends who we all had very different views on it and i i just 
well, firstly, I have such a lack of education when it comes to abortion rights, uh, especially in the UK. Um, but but also the fact that it's not really talked about. And then when it is, you see people with such mm. different views on it. It's almost like, it's not the same, but you can relate it to like racism where it's not really talked about until something happens. And then you realize just like the people that are within your circles, how differing your views can be on such topics, which are so important to talk about. One of the things I found difficult, still find difficult is like the range of opinion amongst medical professionals amongst mm. doctors yeah and i remember i went to med school with this woman who uh we were kind of like halfway through or in like year three or something and she said i don't believe in abortion i don't think it's right but if i was pregnant now i would have one and just kind of said it like right with that doesn't make sense like no sense of irony i don't <laughs> like how could you i don't get it <laughs> How could you want a system where people yeah. can't access it, but say that you would recognize a situation mm. where you might need it? Yeah, and that's really, so, so like, it's really quite scary that because say, for example, and I'm sure if that woman um, had a patient who was looking to get an abortion, how would their own biases come into that? Like, I know there's training around that in the medical profession. How would it hinder your your beliefs hinder your practice and, and how you best treat a patient if those are your beliefs? So legally, doctors or other health professionals can opt out. So there's something called conscientious objection, um, which originated from the UK. Um, you're allowed to opt out of the act of an abortion of like performing the procedure or prescribing the medication. Mm. But if you're, for example, a GP and your patient comes to you and you conscientiously object, then you have a legal duty to refer them on to someone who can have that conversation with them and facilitate that mm. discussion or whatever. Mm. Um, so that's the legal side of things. Yeah. And on paper, it's like, yeah, okay, cool, fine. You ensure that the patient's care comes first, that there's a pathway. But I'm like, in practice, how do you have that conversation without your patient feeling stigmatized? Like it's already mm. such a stigmatized topic. How do you say that in a way that doesn't come across as judgmental? Mm. Um, and I, I don't have the answer <laughs> for that. Um, it's something that, uh, so I'm a part of a group called Doctors for Choice UK which is kind of what it says on the tin, except it's not just for doctors, it's kind of all health professionals are welcome. But it's an advocacy group. And part of the work that we do is around trying to have better education at both like medical school level, undergrad, and at postgrad, like specialty training level, mm. um, to destigmatize. And we're trying to, we've also got um, a term where we say that we have a conscientious commitment being an abortion care provider i think i came across that a few years ago and for me what turned me from saying i wanted to leave clinical medicine completely was actually i was like the only thing i could see myself really committing to providing that one-to-one -one, like doctor patient care is, is abortion care mm. um, because i believe so strongly in it it's so stigmatized um and i think we need to get rid of that stigma mm. What are your guys' thoughts on um, coming off from that? Thoughts on the fact that I feel that 
there's not much education or anything offered around women's health. For example, stuff like endometriosis, which so many people suffer from, but there's hardly any funding or research going into it and education around the act of giving birth and pregnancy or the act of having an abortion. Mm. There's not much information readily available about that and how women can truly take care of their health around that. But then there's so much narrative and talk around what we can or cannot do with our bodies and I feel like there's so much more emphasis on what you're allowed to do and what's perceived as okay or not okay and the actual um, education around just looking after yourself and doing what's best for you I feel like there's not much care around that what's your experience both of you of that (laughs) I'm just nodding like I agree (laughs) because I know nothing about any of this stuff like if I wanted, if I was ever in a position where I wanted an abortion, where I'd have to just go to Google. Google would be my first search. And then in terms of like hearing about, um, you know, giving birth and stuff like that, I've just spoken to women who have given birth before. That's all, my only point of reference is hearing from other people who have who have had babies and what's their experience has been like. But there's not that much else out there. And that's what scares the shit out of me. I'm so scared of being pregnant if I ever if I ever choose to, to, or I'm lucky enough to be pregnant, like how that would be like, because I have such a lack of knowledge. It really scares the shit out of me. Yeah. <laughs> I think particularly for men, I don't think it should just be women learning about so this. True. I think everyone, mm. including men, find out mm. what it's like, you know, mm. find out all about our health. Cause it, you know, I know it's a cliche, but it does take two. And I think mm. men should really be involved in this conversation too. And mm-hmm. yeah, even when I was pregnant and given birth, there was so much you know um that I had to take on board and Mm. absorb because I was just like wow I had no idea Mm. you know and um well it's not walk in the park but it's just so important to know I think and normalize normalize these conversations oh my god yeah and you're growing the damn thing as well like you're growing it they can (laughs) do the research you know what I mean yeah yeah exactly (laughs) there's an Ali Wong sketch where she's like what did you guys do? I made eyeballs. I made a brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is so true. You're literally, you're making a human being. <laughs> I love Ali Wong. Like that, well, I think she's probably the first like East Asian comedian, female comedian that I, probably the only one that I can think of actually. <laughs> and yeah. I remember when it, when it came out a few years ago and became really big, I was like, mm this is amazing Mm. she's got that Um, famous line where she's like where's my confetti because no um, men do the bare minimum like changing a nappy or you know whatever holding your hand through the labor and they're like oh my gosh you're so present oh my god i know oh my god that's so annoying that's so true as well did you ask uh, your partner then to research around pregnancy at the time when when you were pregnant with your daughter yeah i think we both took part in antenatal classes and uh, he was very involved and um, I don't think I really had to ask him I was just like these classes are happening Mm. so let's do them Mm. there are available resources to talk about this and for men to access this if they're interested and um, it really helped me during the birth you know the fact that he had this knowledge I didn't have to say to him don't touch me or touch me or stroke me massage me I although you know he (laughs) knew what to do he was on board and I think that holistic approach where you're both involved yeah. in the birth of this child it's not just me no. um pushing pushing my child out you know it's both of us that really helped because you know it's it's a partnership at the end of the day yeah 
Yeah, I think what you said about access to information is really, really important. I'm kind of of two minds. I'm like, the internet is amazing, right? Like, you have access to so many things if you know where to look, if you know how to like sift through the crap that is out there, because there's a lot of crap information as well.、Mm. Um, but the frustrating thing is, is like, it should be, it should start at school.、Mm. It should start at school, and and that's and there's So much pushback around, around like, oh, you don't want to teach sex to your kids because then they're gonna have sex.、And、I'm like, well, they're having sex anyway.、Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it's a choice between giving them the information to do it safely,、yeah. consensually, empowered to it to, to do it, or to to do it based off of like what they found online、mm. on Pornhub.、Um, yep, that's how I learned.、Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking great! <laughs> made a lot of mistakes along the way. Like I think when I was younger, I subscribed to the ideals of like pleasuring the man, and very much、mm. like I did not think about my own sexual pleasure whatsoever. I remember actually, I was thinking about this. It's so ridiculous. So when I was like twenty-one, I was dating this guy who was like nine years older than me, and he was crap in bed. Like looking back, he he did not care about pleasuring me whatsoever. And like I was saying to him, like you know, it'd be good if you could like you know help me out down there too,、um, because I was like really struggling to like climax and like just he wasn't interested in in doing that. And he was like, you know, maybe you just need to like. Not like masturbate before we have sex, and then you're more turned on. And that was his advice to me. <laughs> I look back now, and I'm like, "You piece of shit! <laughs> you piece of shit! Is that how you want me to be able to get there? Is to sexually frustrate myself so then that、like, when we're together, <laughs> it'll be easier for you to make me climax." And he didn't anyway. He was awful. He was the worst partner ever. Like the onus is on you <laughs> yeah, to yeah. sort yourself out in order to help help him help you. It just、yeah. doesn't make sense. Well,、mm-hmm. I was so young though. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, maybe that's what I need to do. And it's like, no, what the hell? No. Yeah, if it, like looking back, I'm just like, oh, young Viv, young Viv. There is so much for you to learn. Like, the way that we grew up, it it completely makes sense, right? Like、mm. so.、Um, If you strip away the the lack of consistency around sex ed at school, like if there was any sex ed at school,、mm. um, oh, and the other thing I was going to mention before is that I was like the thing, the old school thing of、um, taking boys away when they talk about periods with the girls. Like I don't know if they、mm. still do that, but everyone should learn about periods. Yeah, yeah. Like,、um, so that that would be a starting point for me. I was like, everyone should learn about periods, and everyone should learn about safe and and.、Um, Safety and consent,、mm-hmm. and、uh, yeah, all, all those good things.、Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, even outside of sex ed at school, if you think about the media and like kind of like pop culture that we grew up with, like the Mickey Mouse Club、um, pop stars, like they all took、um, uh, what was called like celibacy, not celibacy vows. Yes, purity, the purity, purity rings, like they'd wear those.、Rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it was like it seems quite normal then, but、mm. looking back now, I'm like that really. It's messed up. That just yes,、yeah, fucks you up in a lot of ways. Around、yeah. you're thinking around like 
virginity, the construct of virginity, mm. like what sex, um, how big of a deal it can be. I mean, it's like for some people, it can be a big deal if you want it to be a big deal. That's fine. But, mm. but otherwise, sex for some people is just like a thing you do. Yeah, yeah. It's just that imposing of that idea into the minds of kids when they're not even probably ready like already putting an emphasis on how important it's to remain pure whatever if you want to but at such a young age it just seems so brainwashing doesn't it because um i think this is a topic that yeah which brings in the shame it brings in the shame yeah yeah i mean there's this idea i think of like sexuality versus sexualization which I've been thinking about a lot where Mm. I think sexuality to me equals creativity it's a way to express yourself share intimacy shared pleasure which is amazing and I think that's a power if you choose to Mm -hmm. because I do acknowledge you know asexuality is also Mm. an identity and that's completely fine Mm. and I think that maturation is just such an important part of you know um, progressing as a as a whole person as human and then there's this idea of sexualization where that part of your identity your sexual appeal is all your worth and mm. how people see you and you know it's apparently your most important facet and yeah. I think that's so damaging because I think definitely for me growing up I was really confused about those two things I really mixed up what my sexuality mm. was with what media was telling me what I should be and I think growing up um, with with a lot of what BCN do, where we're talking about, there's no representation much of East and Southeast Asian people media. But what we do have when we do see it is just something which is so hypersexualized and abstract. I mean, mm. if you happen to have your phone on you now, whoever's listening, like literally Google Asian women and what are the first few things that you see? I mean, mm. I did it earlier and it was literally like sex partner, oh. blah, 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 you know, um, brides oh. or whatever, you know, male. And it's like those are the first things. And I think, I don't think you would get that if you Googled anything else. You might get other stereotypes, other POC, but Mm. that's what I'm saying. We don't have the privilege of a blank canvas. We're automatically placed in a box and subsequently have these whatever various expectations put on us. Just Mm. so damaging. And, you know, we see that play out really violently, you know, in our daily lives and microaggressions or something even worse. Yeah. So, yeah, I totally agree. Oh my gosh, yeah, I resonate with all of that. Like, have you, have either of you ever had a man come up to you and like just outright ask you things about like your vagina? <laughs> like, oh, I heard that Asian women have tight vaginas or very oh. wet vaginas. <laughs> I, I've had that. It's men. Oh God, not like... even men that I'm dating as well, just like oh. men that I know. Just say it as if it's okay to say it to me. Yeah, I've had comments where they say, bet you love it and stuff like that. And just, yeah, definitely things where it is implying that for some reason I would absolutely love, you know, doing it with you when (laughs) I haven't even said anything (laughs) like that. And really, when you're young, when you're growing up, I think Mm. it's just, it's so damaging. It's quite scary. It's really quite gross. Mm. What about in um, Felicia? I know that you're um, single at the moment, and are you da- are you dating <laughs> at the moment? Are you dating any like, man? Just thinking, I was like, mm, how does this all play out when I'm dating? Yeah. So um, I I am single. I'm just turned thirty one and single, and, and that that brings 
thank you uh, brings my family so much joy and honor every day <laughs> what like, more do they want like, bloody hell you're a doctor like <laughs> uh there's a long list i tell you um so like for example i was i was just thinking back um so i think my parents backed off for a while like when i was graduating because i was really stressed around exams and mm. i really struggled with my first few years working as a doctor because i didn't really like my job um now i love my job because i'm working in this really niche field uh but like so they, they kind of like took a step back for a while and they didn't harass me all the time about like having a partner um or thinking about marriage or babies and then this year i got a message so my, my parents aren't in the uk um i got a message from my mom on uh on lunar new year and she's like and then in the same breath was like so do you have a boyfriend yet <laughs> love that just tag it on to the lunar like, year message oh uh, yeah 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 it's just like happy new year are you still single <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of things that i decided in my adult life that my my parents don't really want to hear my mom doesn't really want to hear like the fact that i don't want to move back to canada mm. um recently i've kind of come to terms like i'm not very bothered about getting married about like the institution of marriage mm. I'm pretty sure I don't want kids mm. um in fact I think like I'm, I'm pretty I'm like really sure I don't want kids mm. but it's still you get a sense of trepidation like saying that out loud yeah um because society is very much like yeah oh no like you'll change your mind you just haven't got there yet so yeah uh yeah let alone what my mother or grandmother might say. Yeah, would you ever tell them? Because I, I know that I, I asked my mum recently, actually, and she she is, like, actually so liberal and, like, really open. And she was like, it's your body. You're, you know, you can do whatever you want. Your mum's been so sweet. That last episode was so sweet. <laughs> she, she, is, she is pretty cool, isn't she? <laughs> and her English is amazing. Oh, she'll be so happy to hear that. She'll be so, mm. she has done, she's listened to the episode about um, eight times last time I spoke to her on the phone. <laughs> 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 I'm just getting that. I'm screenshotting so many messages to her about that episode because she was just, like, Aww. absolutely loving it. She's like, I'm so overwhelmed with all the messages. <laughs> so awesome because you obviously like talking about mom i came out of your vagina and, you know, <laughs> I don't like, obviously... stop saying that <laughs> word yeah but i i really feel like that's something that i probably would never say to my mom mm. like never we've never had those conversations yeah. we never talked about sex or mm. um boyfriends or having babies and i think it's so brilliant how you're able to have that conversation with her and I really I think it does feed into them being able to talk about relationships with them mm. you know they're interlinked and I think yeah definitely something I felt was so liberating to hear when you were able to talk about that stuff with your mom because obviously she's open to I mean obviously she was like don't say it <laughs> <laughs> so funny but I love it Aww. and um yeah like do either of you ever talk much about um sex or anything like that with your your family no i mean did you did you talk about sex and boyfriends with your with your mom growing up not sex in particular like there is a degree in our openness like we will talk about things like Mm. you know relationships love and that kind of stuff and like hypothetical things whether she wants us to have grandkids but then when it comes to like the penis in the vagina i don't think she'd want 
to talk about. I think I think she would be or mortified. any other kind of sex. Yeah, or, or any other kind of sex. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Not just not just the heteronormative sex. Um, but yeah, so she would probably shut down at that point and not want to talk about it. And equally, I think I would too. I don't think I'll be like, hey, guess what, mum? I just got laid. <laughs> Let me tell you all about it. <laughs> well, Is it su- super weird though that they're like, we want grandkids, we want grandkids, but like, but you don't want to talk about how they're made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to say the word That's what you're talking vagina. about, right? Yeah, like she, she, <laughs> listened, she listened to my podcast and she heard me saying that I was going to talk about sex more. And she was like, Viv, you shouldn't talk yeah. about these things. You know, you're a girl. And I was like, but why? Why not? And like, I Whereas think- my reaction was, I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> let's talk about um, it. <laughs> And I think that's when I messaged you and I was yes. like, you want to talk about sex? I am here for that. <laughs> Literally, I am here for that. Yeah, I know. And that's how we connected because you you were saying how like you're the only East and Southeast Asian, you're the only Chinese person in your national training program that is an actual sexual reproductive health doctor, which just leads me to think like, why is there such a gap in like the, the EC space to talk about sex? Like I, I haven't come across a podcast that talks about sex or any type of space not even just podcasting but just any type of space at all do you do you guys know any that i'm unaware of because i'd love to know no i I came across a list recently um in the kind of in the wake of like the atlanta shooting Mm. um so like on on instagram for example i follow a lot of um sex educators sex uh this mm. I don't know if that's the right word uh there's a there's a lot of stuff around lots of different types of sex um and i think particularly some of the educators are like amazing resources for uh reaching out to not just like kind of providing you with the kind of information you might not get from school but when it's like targeted to certain communities and audiences so like non-white mm. is broadly what I'm going for yeah. um, but even within that even within that space um, I've not really seen any East Asian Southeast Asian I think the list I got recently um, I had to look through and it's, it's amazing to see like you know we we talk about representation all the time mm. but I'm always really struck <laughs> every time I see I'm like that person looks like me Mm. Um, and they're like posing unashamedly in their lingerie or talking about sex toys Mm. Um, but I think a lot of those accounts were American and maybe quite specific so like some kink spaces polyamory um, for example Uh, not as mainstream as like brown girls do it too for example yeah I think that owning the narrative is so important as well, like having people who are from that community talking about their own sexuality and how they express themselves Mm. is so incredibly important because we are so used to people who aren't East or Southeast Asian trying to tell us what it's like to be Mm. us and how we can express that, you know, very famously through various films. I mean, growing up, for example, in Mean Girls, there's that scene where there's that, um, she's clearly Mm. East or Southeast Asian and she's caught in a locker room, you know, canoodling with the coach. And, you know, back in the day, I'd be like, ha ha ha, that's so funny. But actually, you don't know how that plays into your mind, like how it develops. Because I really think that 
people think stuff like imperialism and colonialism happened a long time ago it was very terrible mm. but it was way back and it doesn't happen anymore and I'm like it really does it mm. happens in our living rooms when we turn on the tv that are trying to take over um, your mind and how you're perceiving yourself and not even just ourselves but other people who consume that media mm-hmm. will soon internalize that kind of narrative and it's happening you know every time and mm. I feel definitely having a child I want to arm her with the ability to be curious and question and say who made it and why did they make it and who's who are they making it for because that's something growing up I was completely missing and internalized just many problematic things basically being very confused oh my god and like really questioning like these stereotypes like where do they come from and we start digging into uh like well history I suppose mm. not like literally all the shitty things that have happened mm. um about why there's this this weird like duality of like model minority but also hypersexualization um and actually I'm really glad you brought up like colonialism and, and imperialism because um one of the things that I really love um that I do outside of work is I'm on the advisory board for a a, a network an organization called decolonizing contraception um really highly recommend checking it out um we've got our own podcast called the sex agenda mm. um which yeah it's just it's just amazing i won't spoil it go have a listen um but one of the main aims so it, it's a collective uh, i would say a movement of um, black and people of color working in sexual reproductive health um, largely UK-based, I think we all are at the moment, um, but recognising that there's so much history, particularly around sexual and reproductive health, um, that is grounded in in our colonial history um, in the ongoing way. And, and that, sh- that continues to show up in, like, ongoing health disparities, mm. um, both in this specialty and outside. Oh, well, I just was really interested in um, how your identity as someone who's EC working in that field mm. and how that plays into it. Because obviously um, there's this intersectionality to, you know, like, our necessity, I think, does play into some of the um, health disparities that we might experience, say, when you you know seeking healthcare because for example when I was pregnant I was two weeks overdue with um, my child and uh, they were like okay well according to our charts you are overdue because the gestation period should be this amount but I'm like that's an average of you know a massive amount of the population most of whom because I live in the UK will be white but will that apply to me do you have specific data that applies to people who are east asian like me because maybe if i'm overdue over here will i necessarily be um overdue in a different country or Mm. from like i didn't know and i really wanted to know how true that was because i was researching gestation periods around the world that are considered norm and they're all different and so very yeah a very large decision so I ended up having an emergency cesarean (gasps) that massive decision was based around the fact that they had this very nominal amount of weeks that they applied to me and I just felt like and I wasn't ready Mm. you know um my 
child didn't want to come out and I wanted to wait and I understood completely they wanted my utmost safety and I have the best respect for the NHS because you know the care they took of me was brilliant but there were some things where I felt like I didn't have a voice because Mm -hmm. their consideration of me as an East Asian person didn't really play into how I personally felt or if I felt ready or not and I am thankful I will always be 100% thankful to all the staff that looked after me but there's an aspect where I felt a bit like I don't know I don't know if this is right so I'd love Mm. to know Felicia like how how your experience and knowledge of that intersectionality plays into your work. Yeah so I uh so I would caveat when I say like my training program there's it's, it's really tiny like there's um 43 of us I think currently from and so it's a six-year program um and across all six years across the UK currently there's only 43 doctors training in it compared to like a larger specialty like Obstangaini which has an intake of like several hundred every year I worked this out earlier because I was like, yes, I am the only Chinese person or East Asian person in my program, but it's one out of 43. And I think my experience as a training doctor, uh, so out of 43 of us, six or seven are non-white, which if you work out is something like 15%, which I think matches the UK population. But it's... It's a very weird experience. I think the first time I walked into a room, because it's it's such a small program. So we like, when we have training days, like pre-COVID, we all gathered in one place. And I walked in and I was like, there's so many white women in here. Mm. They're all lovely people. Mm. But I was (laughs) just a little bit shell-shocked, I think, because like like I grew up in a very, very Chinese environment um, in Canada, uh, living in London. Uh, going to uni in South London like it's always very mixed very diverse environment but the specialty as a whole yeah very white um, I think and it, it, it's still a, a small specialty if you look beyond the training so those who kind of completed their training who like the seniors our consultants our bosses um, and I think I've come across one other I think Chinese person um, who's a researcher who I regularly kind of pops up in these spaces. Um, so I don't know if, and, and I'm only about a year and a half in, into this specialty training, so I'm still kind of navigating the space a bit professionally. I think that intersectionality, for me, it comes more as like being a person of colour, not necessarily an, an East Asian person in this space, being a person of colour in a really white space. That's how I feel about it, kind of, coming at it from a training side. So one of the reasons why I got involved with decolonizing contraception is that these conversations aren't being held. Mm. I think as a specialty, we're quite progressive. Um, It's hard to like work in sex if you're not progressive, I suppose is the theory. and, and more progressive in some areas than others. For example, there's like loads of gay men who work in, in sex, uh, sexual health um, because of uh, all the advocacy that came around HIV and, um, you know, a few decades ago. So I think it's not be generous and say, I don't think it's a lack of willingness to talk about this, but there's very much a lack of comfort around talking about these things. When we talk about public health when we talk about health 
inequalities. So um, one of the biggest statistics that have come out in sort of the last few years and is that black women are five times more likely to, to die in childbirth. It's not talked about. Yeah. <laughs> or when it is talked about, it's... Uh, so I remember having this conversation with a colleague who uh, works in obstetrics. Um, mentioned that this was a finding from like a massive, like, a really important national report. And and she was just like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I, I wonder why. And like, kind of started talking about genetics or anatomy. And I was like, no, 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 no. Social determinants. Like, mm. this is this is due to like all the social factors around it. And I think that conversation is hopefully progressing but sometimes it can be quite tiring being one of the people to constantly be like no but actually yeah please please look at it this way yeah there's a really good uh there's a really good book called superior by angela saini uh who i think it came out last year and it is about deconstructing race quote-unquote science Mm. to kind of be like race is a social construct yeah um, all of this underlying science is fed by racism, mm. um, and it's not—it's not sound science, you know. Yeah, yeah. And you can't explain away health inequalities that are caused by social determinants through genetics. Mm, yeah, I think it's something that, like, only the past year I have become aware of when it comes to like medical science and how it's—it's it's so tailored to white people like um Michaela Loach she's a black woman and she was talking about an experience with her she's a she's a podcaster and and she's on Instagram as well and she was talking about how her mum basically had um a rash on her skin but then she rang up the NHS helpline and they asked her is it a red rash but because on like dark black skin that's pretty much undetectable you're unable to see it and like how she thank god she was in a position where she's a doctor and she could inform her mum and tell her to like you know uh, push back on the nhs but like they just it's just so wild that like these people that we look Mm. to as like authoritarians for our health our our lives um racism is so entrenched in their training and like it's really quite scary to think that and that like when you were saying before amy as well how with that data and how um what's the word gestation gestation period that gestation Mm. period and how like i would never have questioned that i would have just taken that as gospel from my doctors i wouldn't have even looked at what what data that would have been from at all so that's completely blown my mind you just don't question it because they are meant to be people who have your best interests at heart which i'm sure they do but there's so much bias within their training. Like, if they're not aware of it, how how are they going to know? And then how are we going to know and look after our own health? So scary. Yeah, yeah. it's really incredible <laughs> that it's it's also extremely normal to expect women to give birth lying on their back when in fact that's so unnatural Isn't and it? doesn't use gravity to help you at all. Because back in the day, it's, it was way more common to stand up and squat and do it. Because <gasps> Asian squat style. Open, I think I was like Asian yeah. squat style. Asian <laughs> squat style. Because it opens your canal, you're, you know, you're yeah. letting the baby go, you're letting gravity work, you breathe the baby out and, you know, it might not work for everyone, but that's considered a way in which, mm. you can, you know, you can really naturally give birth. And the reason why there's this tendency to lay on our backs and give birth and why it's encouraged because there was some king or duke way back in I don't know which century maybe 17th 18th who was really interested want to watch a woman giving birth but the only way that he Mm. could see it was if the woman laid on her back and so he 
he watched it and then because there's this great duke doing it and you know popularizing it everyone in the population started laying on their back to give birth which is so unnatural you're pushing you're straining the baby to come out and that's not actually the way and really you know i think there is now a movement mm. to encourage women to get in whatever position feels comfortable to yeah. you that doesn't necessarily mean it's on your back where you know there's no gravity helping you oh. and that was to me like wow, wow. you know i'm like that yeah. right now mm. like you think about like when we have poos <laughs> and stuff yeah like we should squat right yeah asian squat. squat like that makes so much sense Wait, i've never heard that story before but i mean yeah yeah uh, yeah I, I do think there's a movement now to being like you can kind of birth in, in a variety of positions yeah um but i Oh, I was thinking why is tearing so prevalent and stuff like that you know it's because we're encouraged to strain and that's yeah. that's where this fear I've forgotten the name of it there's a term for fear of childbirth because mm. we are fed in the media mm. when you watch a film or tv show where someone's giving birth what they're doing screaming their heads off and stuff like that and yeah sure of course you should make a noise if you feel pain do whatever you feel right but then there's this representation of you know you're lying on your back screaming your head off when that's not even considered the way that's the easiest way to give birth Mm. and it gives people this really you know horrible feeling around giving birth and I think it's very valid I think you should feel that if you do feel fear but we should be given more representation of people who are giving birth and not necessarily feeling a horrible pain because lots of people if you research into it actually enjoy childbirth because um, I guess they found a way that works for them and you don't have to scream pain lots of people are encouraged to breathe through it and you know use whatever they need to do it in a way that where pain that you feel during labor and childbirth is a good pain you know because you're bringing a child into the world and it's about reframing your mind we should move away from thinking you know pain Mm. equals birth equals horrible Mm. you know because at the end day that's not an equal representation of what everyone is experiencing and so yeah it's not a scary thing because I had that yeah. I was so scared yeah. you know because all you hear about is like uh, tearing and stuff like that yeah. and sure it happens yeah. but you know there are ways to you know work around it I think oh my god yeah, yeah. I think that even for me started in like I think elementary school and and I'm kind of of two minds because um so there's a certain point I don't know when we were like um, maybe a little bit older um, where they show us a video of childbirth at school Yeah. Um, but I remember like I had like an appointment or something that day and I like missed it so I, ne- I never watched it with all my peers um, and I remember that there was like there was like so many whispers around it everyone was like oh my god it's going to be so scary or like as if, as if it's like a horror film mm. uh, and therefore I was quite like pleased that I missed it Um. So on the one hand, I'm like, oh, it's it's good because it can like stimulate conversation around like where do babies come from mm. and and about like people's bodies and things. Um, but only if it's done in a kind of like safe environment where you're not having all that kind of fear around it. I think. Mm. Yeah, because the fear tenses um, you up, right? When you feel fear, that you mm. tense up. You know, you're squeezing everything, and then that's not really conducive to you know, helping a baby come out. And yeah, um, yeah I mean, uh, labor depends on oxytocin, the feel good hormone. And the more you feel good and happy. You've done and looking... so much reading. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, like, I mean. Oh God, you know more than I do. <laughs> 
I think, yeah, because I did a, a lot of research around it. I did something called hypnobirthing where um, it, you know, it talks a lot about the the cycle of chemicals that happens when you go into labor and the release of good hormones and how that relaxes your muscles and enables um, well hopefully for the baby to come out you know naturally because you're working with the baby and not against the baby and you're not fearing them coming out you're loving them coming out and that feeds into each other it's a whole body system it's not just physiological it's psychological too Mm. you know we we talk a lot about um, when we're fearing something to take rest and to you know step back and take joy if you can and so what I learned from hypnobirthing was to in you know embrace it you know look forward to it because it can be so scary what we're fed Mm. around the narrative of childbirth is really terrible I mean that show one born every minute you know you're always hearing the Mm -hmm. screams that was what was prevailing in that show and it's it's so damaging oh I can't watch that like you know that that fear that you talk about I have that so badly because I don't know anything. I've not had, well, I've not had to research it, first of all, um, and I've not had to talk about it, really. So I just see what I see on the media, on TV, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's going to be my reality if I ever have, I'm lucky enough to be pregnant. And I, I also, as well, I don't know whether this is, like, normal or not, but I've got this weird belly button fear. Like, I don't like anyone touching... Belly button? Yeah, I know, it's really strange, but, like, I don't like anyone touching my belly button. I don't like the thought of my belly button been looked at and touched and then like (laughs) i think me and my sisters all have it and we all think that we were like all killed in a previous life like through our belly buttons oh my god that's the theory anyway (laughs) i don't know how true that is but yeah that's what we think so like i also have that exacerbated with and obviously and i used to think when i was younger that the baby came out of the belly button as well so oh then, my god <laughs> so then in a way my mom told me that my mom said that my to mom me. That told me that too <laughs> why did she tell me that when it's not why didn't she just go a bit further down and say it came out of the vagina and now you can be like no mom i came out of your vagina <laughs> yeah. yeah maybe that's why she's like talking about it because she genuinely believes that we came out of her belly button <laughs> But like, yeah, all that fear and stigma and like lack of knowledge is what feeds into it. So I'm, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one to feel that way about people who haven't um, been pregnant before. Like, all of those things. Like, I think this whole podcast is just going to be me being like, oh my god, my mind is blown. <laughs> oh my god, I've learned so much. Little chat. Uh, little my belly chat. button feels weird now. Well, maybe you could put a plaster over it because so uh, no one had to touch your belly button. Oh no, you don't even want that. Have you ever put your finger in your belly button? Yeah, 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 yeah. I have to clean it. It but feels it, so weird. It, yeah. Does it make it like a weird feeling where it goes down to like your your vagina? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get what, that. What is that? But if I like push too hard when I'm cleaning it, it oh! makes me want to pee. Oh! It makes you want to pee. Does it make you want to pee? Oh my God, don't push it, AV. Why would you push <laughs> well, it? Well, I'm cleaning it. Oh! I just pushed it a bit too hard. Oh, stop. <laughs> well, we were just talking about belly buttons and like we, we were both saying like when we clean our belly buttons, which I fucking hate doing. How like there's a weird feeling that goes down to your like vagina area or like inside. What is yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I get that. What is that? Mm. Can you explain that, please, doctor? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though? Have you ever? I'm gonna. I'm gonna investigate it and. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so, and then Amy says that she needs a I wee. No, no. It makes me want to pee when I press my belly button. It's like a button that oh. makes me want to go. Oh, makes me like pressing really, really hard. No, no, no. It's just say I'm like oh. just cleaning it or oh. just not really hard, oh. but you know. Have you got an outie, Amy? <laughs> no, I don't. I've got an innie. 
what about you felicia have you got, I've got an any any yeah i've got a fucking deep any like not to really? not to flex but it's deep as fuck <laughs> it's so deep it's like a black hole you can't see anything no way <laughs> it's so gross but it gets really dirty so and when i clean it i honestly amy don't touch it i can see you looking <laughs> don't touch it i can't watch anyone else touching their belly button as well it just makes me feel sick to my stomach Gosh. Are you touching it, Felicia? I can, I can kind of feel it. Felicia's no, touching it. Never her do belly that button. in front of you, Vin. No, please don't. I'm so grossed out, more so than the vagina chat. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna. I'm quite interested in knowing the answer to this one, but um, can we talk a bit about sex shaming in EC culture? Oh my and, god, um, yes. What, yeah. yeah. Our experiences of that. What are your thoughts? Oh yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. This story encapsulates for me of like the shame. <laughs> In, in Chinese culture, I'm going to say from, um, I'm like, I'm going to put a disclaimer. I was like, I love my, I love my, my family. I love my parents. I do, but we're like quite different mm. in lots of ways. Um, so, um, like I said earlier, like for a long time, I was like, I'm going to, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. I don't want to be a doctor. I want to go into public health research, global health research, um, which would still have been in and around like abortion. Um, or sort of sexual, uh, sexual and reproductive health. Um, but then I got into this training program and I was like, amazing, because it, it's kind of all of my favorite things fit together. Um, but I didn't tell my parents. So, so they live in Canada. So I found out I got my job um, probably around this time two years ago. And I didn't tell them because I didn't want to have that conversation on the well, I didn't want to have that conversation full stop. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to have that conversation via text slash on the phone mm. slash FaceTime or whatever. And it wasn't until I just was like, oh, I got a job. It's fine. I'll be employed. Don't worry. I'm still a doctor. I went back, uh, I guess, like maybe in the summertime. And I kind of like kept it vague, maybe told them what the title was, but like, didn't really get into it or wouldn't like kind of brush it off and be like oh it's, it's women's health like they can understand that but I went back over the summer I had a break so I uh, saw my parents and my mom like sat me down we were having we were having hot pot we were like out in public mm-hmm. <laughs> in a restaurant and she was like okay but like what are you what are you gonna be doing you're gonna be like birthing babies and I was like no that's like a, a different part of um, different different specialty mm. not what I'm gonna be doing mm. And she was like, okay, but like, I don't understand. Um, so I was like, okay, deep breath. And I was like, okay, so like sexual health, how do I explain this? And I was like, on a really, uh, so we speak a mix of like Cantonese and English. Mm. And I was trying to explain, I was like, okay, on the most like basic medical level, I was like, it's dealing with like, let's say sexually transmitted infections, mm. like sex related infections. Um, and I was like, oh, you know, like, like chlamydia like do you know what that is and then she was like thinking about it thinking about it and then she was like (gasps) (laughs) do you mean AIDS and I was just like oh my god oh jeez oh my god yeah um and I was like I was like okay okay like you know we can do some some like destigmatizing and and education and I'm like okay you know like for a certain generation like HIV, uh, well, people didn't even know what HIV was. It was like AIDS, and AIDS equals death. Mm. Um, and I was like, okay, mom, like you know, uh, HIV is the virus, and like it's it's 
something that you can live a long and healthy life with. And actually people living with HIV um, live longer and healthier lives than, than a lot of the general population. Um, and there are medicines, like, you know, it's, it's, it's not a death sentence and it's very much a manageable chronic condition. Um, and there shouldn't be stigma attached to it, you know, in one year out, out the other. Uh, did not take any of that on board. She was like, oh, um, people, people won't want to be your friends if they know you work with like infected patients. And I was like, okay, this is not, uh, yeah. not like, not the way I want this conversation mm -hmm. to go. She just wasn't really, was just kind of very stuck on like her point of view. Yeah. Um, and then eventually I got fed up and I did not take the high road and I not proud of this and I was like don't worry mom like that's not all I'm gonna do it's like I'm gonna be an abortion doctor too and she's like no <laughs> um, like why do you want to kill babies uh, oh, no. so yeah. that is fun so it sounds like a lot of the, the shaming came from your job and the practice around that yeah mm. which makes it difficult because like I think she she's always wanted me to be a doctor mm. and now she was like I don't want to tell people what you do and I'm like it's fine tell them what I'm doing mm. and she's like no 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was like I love what I do yeah um so we just kind of don't talk about it which is fine because I have like a fantastic community mm. of, of other support and things yeah um but it yeah it's definitely one of those dimensions of like being Chinese and working in this field and like I constantly am thinking about like who is this audience that I'm talking to how mm. comfortable are they going to be with where my identity sits and where they think my identity sits yeah. um, with what I do people don't like to talk about sex and the shame associated with it is just it's so harmful. Mm, yeah. So it's like a very basic conclusion, but I know it's not. It's not it's basic bad. at all. It's it's really. It must be so exhausting, you know, to advocate for something you feel so passionate about, and to have to navigate through spaces in which you have to decide whether you can speak freely about it or not to the people that are closest to you as well, whether it be sex or whether it be any other subject. Like having to pick and choose parts of your identity in order to be palatable to that person is extremely tiresome and exhausting and it, it, it does make you want to almost like well for me certainly not just about sex but other subjects shy away from sharing parts of my life with people who are close to me because I worry about yeah. that the stigmatization of um well any subject you know when it, even when it comes to say dating and I think like a lot of slut shaming that I've had ha have been from people close to me where I've, I've shared mm. dating stories before um and it's not been met with like you know openness I've had chlamydia before and I've been laughed at for having chlamydia and it's like do you, like was it really like that's not my fault like I'm not it doesn't mm. equal dirty because I've had chlamydia I sat with that a lot you know like I really really kept that and and, and hid that for for a long time um because I thought there was it was something inherently disgusting about me like the fact that I wasn't like safe meant it was it was my fault and that I deserved it almost and I, I deserved to be shamed for it um it's the first time I've actually talked about it actually in a public setting hello everyone Thank I've just told everyone 
that I had an <laughs> STD. But that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. And we need to talk about it. And that's exactly why I wanted to bring you onto the podcast and for us to talk about this more because there is nothing to be ashamed of to say that you have had an STD or anything else, anything to do with sex. Um, yeah, so thank you for sharing that as well because like... I relate, even though obviously I'm not a doctor or anything, but I relate to that experience so much of having to hide parts of your life um, yeah. in order to 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 fit into people around you. It's it's we shouldn't have to do that, you know, especially with those who are we're closest to yeah. as well. I think it's that conflation of like, yeah. Thank you for sharing that, and um, yeah, I think it's that conflation of um, sex equals shame, mm. vagina equals right. shame, mm. penis equals you know it's like why are you pushing these two things together when it's entirely separate you know enjoying your sexuality Mm. and um doing whatever you want with your life in private in a consensual relationship Mm -hmm. is absolutely fine and separate from um sexual reproductive health which is something if we talk about it more it's something that maybe more people can address and be able to identify and therefore seek help if they need it because i really feel like i would be the same i would just not want to talk about it Mm -hmm. do it in private and it's internalizing it which can be so damaging i think it's it has a toll on mental health and the idea that oh i'm dirty because of this but it's not because i'm sure so many people mm-hmm. have experienced having um a, uh, std and it's it's fine we should talk about it because otherwise i think it can have mm-hmm. a really negative impact on how you move in the world totally. and express yourself and uh, also seeking help you know i think i've certainly suffered from an unwillingness to go and um seek help with say uh looking after my body or even had smear tests like so Mm. far apart like Mm. not even adhering to what i should be doing because i was so scared of someone um you know looking at me down there Mm. and now i'm fine i think um definitely after giving birth you know i I don't really care (laughs) who Mm. digs around there if they're a doctor it's fine (laughs) Mm. um but in the past i'd be like oh no 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 i don't need to touch it or go anywhere near it and i think we should just be more open to saying look uh vagina not is not only just for receiving pleasure, which is fantastic, it also has other functions, like it can give birth, it, mm-hmm. it's an amazing organ. Yeah. And uh, yep, sometimes it's susceptible to diseases like any other part of our body, but we yeah. should be able to talk about it. Absolutely, yeah. I had my smear test recently and I was like, Jesus, this is the first time anyone's been down there in a long time. I welcomed it. I was like, bring, <laughs> bring the speculum, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> And it was great. It was fine. My nurse was amazing. <laughs> oh, I'm really happy to hear that because I often I feel like I get a mix. Some some people are like it was an amazing experience because they they built up so much fear in their head. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the uh, one of the things I enjoy most is like doing my best for whoever is in front of me and like hoping that I can make their experience a little bit smoother and mm. a little bit less fearful and stigmatizing absolutely Uh, this equating sex with shame like yes we've kind of talked about like the pop culture that we grew up with and around that but for a long time i think um and and even now i still unpicking a lot of it for me it was like sex equals shame was very much tied to being chinese Mm, yes um and that the i don't even know if i have the words for it it's like it's the, the silencing in the culture. It's the 
that nobody talks about it. Mm-hmm. So like when I was a teenager, um, my first boyfriend, he was 16. And my, my mom like essentially found out or something. Or like I told my aunt, she said she wouldn't tell my mom. She told my mom, obviously. <laughs> uh, uh, and my mom came and was like really awkwardly, like to her credit, trying to, I think, talk about it, but didn't really use any which words. So it, it was a vivid conversation of like me being like, oh my God, I want to die. I don't want to have this conversation with you. <laughs> She's like, oh, I heard you have a boyfriend and uh, just uh, mole. Sorry for my canto, it's very rusty. So don't, so don't with, go, to, don't go to bed with him. Is that how yeah, it translates? To me, I'm like, don't, don't get into bed or don't yeah. get on the bed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Something about like the yeah, bed. Don't get on the bed. Go yeah. to the bed. Don't get on the bed with yeah, them. I guess. Yeah. Do it on the floor. Um, Do it on the sofa, <laughs> but not on the bed. Yeah. <laughs> Not, no, we don't want to. We don't want to wash the sheets all the time. Um, like, That's why they cover it in plastic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, dirty, dirty people. My question is, why is the remote control also covered then? Oh my god, great oh. question. Oh my god, no. Oh, that, oh that's triggered me. That's triggered sorry. me. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, but that that was like the end of the conversation, and like if I hadn't had any sex at it school like literally would have meant nothing to me Mm, (laughs) right yeah um and even as I got older and like in uni I was dating people and they knew that I would like stay over and there was just just no conversation about it that's the thing it's not even the shaming it's the the silencing as shaming like Mm. the complete nothingness the void of talking about it is shame in itself and yeah like I, I completely relate to that as well like we weren't allowed to have boys stay over our house yeah fair enough you know their house their rules and everything but like if they knew that we were staying over at someone else's uh house a boyfriend's house there's so much shame around that like I felt guilty every time I didn't stay at home or I was staying over at someone else's house and that is mm. so damaging and I still feel that yeah. sometimes a little bit you know when I when I date and I have people over like I still feel that shame but it's really good to be aware of it I think and just be cognizant of the fact that that is something that mm. like we've been taught and it's been indoctrinated in us for so many years but that is not the truth it doesn't have to be our truth I think um, what I grew up with um, a lot is internalized misogyny around Mm. me and the fact that um, there's this narrative of boys will be boys and if you go near them then you are the one if anything happens to you it'll be your fault because you should have known um, that guys will do this and um, I grew up with that a lot where um, it was just like if you if you fraternize Mm. with any boys and you know I think certainly um, for my older siblings they had a lot of restrictions Mm. placed on them you know don't go out who are you going out with are they a boy you know that was always a question Mm. are they are they boys and so there was already Mm. this fear instilled in me of like you know they're separate beings and they're only after one thing I think that's so damaging as well because it placed onus on me the responsibility on me to have to protect myself and put myself away when that that shouldn't really be the case yeah oh my god I remember actually that that's triggered a memory from when my dad said to me years when I was really young as well he was like if if you are ever in a room with a boy and they see a bed they will just think one thing they will just think sex 
And I remember, I, I distinctly remember that. And that's always stayed, stayed with me. And like, it's exactly that, Amy. It's putting the onus onto you um, when it comes to their men's behavior, which is completely out of our control. And like, I hadn't actually realized that that isn't the truth. And I know my dad was saying that to protect me from that in a way, mm. in, his, in his own way. And that's the only conversation I ever remember having talked to him about sex <laughs> at all was that that one line he it wasn't a man of many words but yeah that one mm. line and that's really quite scary that's my sex education <laughs> from my dad yeah. and I, I remember like because I've got a brother who's six years younger than me and I remember my mom telling me things when I was a teenager and I would get so mad because I could recognize the double standards mm. like she was like dropping me off on like a school dance or something <laughs> Um, being like, you know, be careful about the boys. And like, again, like you were saying, putting the onus on on me as a girl. Um, and I was like, would you say that to to your son, you know, when he comes of age and he's going to a school dance? She was like, of course not. He's a boy. And I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, uh, mm. and I just remember I was only like 14 or something. And I was, I was just so mad mm. at double standards. I, I love that you were so aware at that age. I was not aware at all of that that type of language the the gendered language being used at all i wouldn't have even noticed that at all yeah. i'm not really sure why why i or i well you know sometimes when you look back and it's like rose-tinted glasses i'm like maybe i was <laughs> i just think i was more worse than i was i remember one other thing that used to really like piss me off when i was young is uh, you know that thing that um asian parents tell their kids is when you're eating rice in a bowl and uh, I was always told you have to eat every single grain of rice because yeah. if you don't yeah. that's what your face will look like yeah or your husband's girl yeah or your husband's face did you get that as well so I no so I was gonna say what my parents used to say is mm. like so if you're a girl it'll be what rice is left in your bowl is what your face looks like and if you're a boy it's what your wife's face will look like oh. and I was like that is fucking terrible isn't it i literally but I, I literally had this conversation yesterday with someone about rice and i was saying like yeah i was told as a kid if i didn't eat all my rice the what was ever was left would be how spotty my husband was and then i was like how fucked up is that that like the only worth that mm. we have as children as like a five-year-old is that when we're going to get married what our husbands will look like and that's the only worth that that's what we're told as kids and I, I like obviously i know it's such like a it's an old wives tale it's like a weird tradition mm. type of i don't know what it is just a quirk of like our culture um but actually like that is so embedded in our culture to like have those ideals of you need to get married and you need to find a husband that's attractive and that's your worth and that's what should be your priority and what's important. I was like, what the fuck? That's so messed up. Yeah. There's a big onus on that patriarchy, isn't there? Mm. That like, um, you know, whatever the, definitely for me, like whatever men need to do and uh, whether they are lashing out or doing terrible things, you know, that is okay. It's permissible and that we have to deal with it. I think that's what I grew up with a lot and how that manifested in me growing up and how I related to um, men and boys was I was just scared. 
I just didn't even want to go near them because I was just like, oh, I've been, you've been painted the picture mm-hmm. as someone who's going to harm me and damage me. And I think that was a very roundabout and strange way to try and protect me because mm-hmm. all it did was really just instill a fear of me. And I think in some ways delay my development because it was obviously only much later on in life where I was just like, no, you know, I have an agency and I'm able to, um, you know, talk with them and recognize them as you know as fully formed beings as we are because mm-hmm. what happened is when I am taught that I'm only seen a certain way that internalized for me and that oh yeah that means I, I am an object I have to present myself in a certain way I'm being objectified and that really seeped into me you know that I only saw myself in a one-dimensional way because that was what I was taught was important mm. like you know you have to show a certain face mm. I think that's definitely um um that I don't know if it's a, a fully East or Southeast Asian thing, but certainly showing face, like yeah. being able to show yeah. um, honourable side to you and that it really mm. impacts on your family. And obviously the family collectivism, that kind of thing is so important mm. in East and Southeast Asian culture. And I think that plays into it. Like what you do in your life reflects on your family and mm. your community. Mm. And in some ways that's great. And in other ways it can be so damaging because it doesn't take into account your individualism. Yeah. And the fact that we are growing up in a, a different country where there's these conflicting yeah, like narratives and individualistic society yeah, yeah like yeah fuck me exactly. it's complicated yeah. i wish we could talk for longer um i feel like there's so much more to unpack but i think <laughs> what one last thing i guess for you felicia is what do you want the folks listening to take away and be aware of sex is great and we should all talk about it all sex the time. Sex is great. Sex, sex is great. Sex is great. I sex love sex. Great. <laughs> Thanks for the little song. Yes, I agree. Um, yeah, I just wish we could do away with that stigma. And I think one of the ways we can do that is just to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about sex to my friends all the time. And yeah. I'm going to leave you with uh, three resources, actually. Uh, one is... Um, do you know the Guilty Feminist podcast? No, yes, I haven't heard of it. Heard of it. Yeah. Um, so I, it's like quite well known, I think. Mm. Um, there's one episode in particular where, so I, I I started listening to it a few years ago. I found it a bit white feministy, so I stopped. Mm. Um, but I came back to it last year because there was an episode featuring Jamila Jamil. Mm. And it's all about shame. And it's amazing. Like, I it really I was like in pieces by the end of it mm. um I think if you have like an evening uh, an hour in the evening to yourself like in the bath or something it's a, it's a good good like contemplative mm. episode but yeah it's, it's uh Jamila Jamil's episode of the uh Guilty Feminist um on shame so that and, and she talks about shame particularly as a woman of color mm. which particularly got to me yeah um so that's one uh the second is I was thinking about this when we were talking you were talking about that older guy who just like didn't know what he was doing um or didn't care to know no. what he was doing which which is worse <laughs> uh so there's i mean there's lots of great res- resources out there um one of my favorites is a website called omgs.com i think mm. um just google omgs yeah it's an online resource made by american academics I think uh, which is all about female pleasure and it's it's 
creating a language that I didn't even know we didn't have. Mm-hmm. You know, when you grow up and like Cosmo's got all, the, all these articles about like how to give a blowjob. Yes. Like <laughs> very specific language, very specific instructions, but you don't have it the other way around. And that's basically what they've done. Um, <laughs> but, Love like, that. Online tutorials on like how to bring someone to climax and then he has a right in the diner yeah defo checking I think that you, have out. Pay, you have to pay a small fee but um i just sent it to all of my friends <laughs> um sent it to all of their partners and some of them were like um is this like should i take a hint <laughs> <laughs> yes yes you should <laughs> Well, you know, I think it's a nice thing to to look at as an individual, but also to look at Mm. um, with your partner, Mm. partners. Um, So that was the second one. And the last one is uh, a little bit of uh, health promotion there is uh, that most places in the UK now have free online sexual health testing. Um, It was already developing and then COVID really pushed it all online. So it's like, can order STI kits at home um so for a woman or someone with a with a vagina Mm. um it would be a swab down below that you do yourself for chlamydia and gonorrhea and you can do a finger prick blood test for HIV and syphilis it's super easy it's free post to you free post back to them everything's like you kept updated with text messages um it's easier (laughs) to order and smoother as a process than like the government's COVID testing like amazing that's that a whole is, other thing thank you so much i'm gonna check all of them out and also i have done that t- test before as well and it does take a lot of that fear and worry i think of like having to just go to the doctors and and mm. and, and, and the practicalities around that as well um so thank you for that i think that'll be really really helpful so oh i have a question on. how uh, sorry i know that <laughs> um so how like often do you upfront ask oh have you had a sexual test yet or oh by the way I'm clear are you sort of thing like do you often have those conversations with people you've met oh me like Uh, yeah like if if you're dating yeah yeah. (laughs) not just like your mates (laughs) are you a little like little health check and be like no um so dating oh yeah oh I wish we had so much more time um (laughs) dating in late 20s and 30s now uh is is sometimes okay to answer your question yes i ask them um so <laughs> the first date is always like it is a bit like an interview i think you said like said it mm, before this um yeah. so i've i've got in my like race related questions and then i've got my sexual related questions i need to start well. adding the, these questions to the yeah. race ones for sure uh, yes well I mean only if I think it's if I'm like interested enough to like take it beyond just mm-hmm. having a drink or having a chat or whatever obviously if I'm bored then I don't care <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah there's 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 the like uh have you ever dated Asian women before mm-hmm. um line of questioning and then if um things are getting physical then they like might ask them I'm trying to like keep this separate in my head from like the sexual histories and the questions that I ask at work (laughs) (laughs) it's not that different it's like oh like when did you last have sex who was it with um was it uh with a man or a woman Mm. 
um <laughs> when was the last time you had testing yeah, yeah. and if i'm really gonna get detailed because there's also like a window period so if you've had sex yesterday then your tests won't show anything for um for two weeks if it's chlamydia and gonorrhea oh. or um four to well actually now it's basically more like two to three months for hiv and syphilis right. it's all on sh24 on the online website mm. um but if because that's also the thing they might be like oh like I broke up with someone like a month ago and I had testing right after we broke up but I might be like well maybe you can do another one." Oh my god I didn't know that that's so good to know yeah, um, see we so... need this information out there don't we like these are the key <laughs> questions you should be asking you know? yeah I, I, I <laughs> would the whole checklist l- first date checklist feel like feel like we need to have that as a resource somewhere first date checklist yeah <laughs> be seen oh, let's do it oh my god yes that's a fucking brilliant idea yeah 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 i i ask those things like as well chapter of bc yeah yeah totally yes, please. i i what do i usually do i mean i think like i use I, i'm like i use condoms until we've both been tested but i've never ever thought about the fact of like there's delayed um results from like hiv and syphilis never even considered that at all um so that is brilliant knowledge and i will take that thank you so much felicia and thank you so much for your time (laughs) i'm just using like lots of hand gestures right now (laughs) to express how i feel people could see faces (laughs) um it's been amazing thank you so much for having me oh thank you so much for like messaging and like leaning in and putting yourself forward because like slid into your dms i love a good dm slide and like i'm just so grateful so like thank you for your time and thank you amy my co-host thank you to both of you i I really enjoyed that thank you so much i've learned so much Mm -hmm.